أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وآله محمد We continue our examination of the final years of the Prophet's stay in Mecca before his migration to the city of Medina. The religion of Islam begins to spread to Medina in stages. First, you had two people who embraced the religion of Islam from the people of Yathrib or Medina. We briefly talked about them before, As'ad ibn Zurara and the Kawan. Basically, if you remember, they met the Prophet during the days when he was in the Sha'b of Abi Talib in that embargo. It was during the pilgrimage season when they meet him in Masjid al-Haram. And if you remember, the reason why these two people came from Medina is because the Aws and the Khazraj, they were fighting one another. So these two came to the Meccans to see if they can build an alliance with them to stop this war and achieve victory in Medina. So they were told that we're not interested in helping you because we have our own problems. And our biggest problem now is this man who's claiming to be a prophet and he's brought a new religion. Then they warn these two that you're going to see him in Masjid al-Haram. He has the power to induce magic on you. So make sure that you don't hear him. So what they do is they put cotton in their ears and they go and they circulate around the Kaaba and the Prophet was reciting verses from the Quran until you know, one of them, As'ad ibn Zurara, he rebukes himself. He tells himself, you're an idiot. You're not even willing to listen to him. Come on, what's the harm? The people of Medina are going to ask you, at least know what he's saying. So if you're asked, you're not embarrassed, and you tell them, oh, I was scared to listen to him. So he removes the cotton from his ears. He listens to the message of the Prophet, and he accepts his message. <laughs> and he becomes a Muslim. So these two were the first two from the people of Medina to embrace the religion of Islam. And he really becomes happy when he meets the Prophet. He tells the Prophet, we've heard so much about you from the Jewish people in Medina and finally we are meeting this final Prophet. So they go back to Medina and they inform their friends about the teachings of the Prophet. About five to eight people also embrace the religion of Islam. Now they did not go really public with this, they accepted the message of the Prophet, but they were not publicly declaring that they were Muslims yet. Then comes the events of the Aqaba. The events of the Aqaba are very important events that prepared for the migration of the Prophet to the city of Medina. So in the 11th year after the Ba'thah, 11 years after the Prophet received revelation, during the pilgrimage season, when the Prophet was inviting various tribes to join the religion of Islam and asking them for support, he met several members of the Khazraj. They were six people and As'ad ibn Zurara was one of them. These six people who had come from Medina, they officially accept the religion of Islam and publicly they become Muslims. They tell the Prophet that we are Muslims, we are following your path. 
Then after that, they go back to the city of Medina and they now officially start to preach the message of Islam. Previously, they were, those two were just telling the people of Medina, oh, we went to Mecca and we heard this prophet and he had some interesting beliefs. But now, these six, when they come in the 11th year of the Ba'tha, they meet the Prophet ﷺ during the pilgrimage season. They now officially become Muslims and they go back to Medina inviting people to support the Prophet and to become Muslims. So they go back to Medina, they inform their people of the Prophet. Then a year later, we're now in year 12 after the Ba'tha, the allegiance of the first Aqaba takes place. Now before we talk about the Aqaba and what it is, let's mention some very important points over here. Yes? The first two who converted to Islam were As'ad ibn Zurara. The second person was a man by the name of Dhakawan. The Prophet when he was in those three years of the Shab of Abi Talib, he was only allowed to go to Masjid al-Haram during the pilgrimage season, that's when they met him. And that's when they had initially put cotton in their ears, but then they finally heard the message of the Prophet. These two were the first to embrace Islam from the people of Medina. So what year was that? This was during the days of the Shab of Abi Talib. So maybe the year 9, for anywhere from 8 to 10. And then in the 11th year, the six people come and officially embrace the religion of Islam. And they go back to Medina to preach the message of Islam. In year 12, they come, 12 people, we'll talk about that, and they make an allegiance with the Prophet, they pledge him allegiance. Now before we talk about the allegiance of the Aqaba, Bay'at al-Aqaba al-Ula, a few very important observations here. The first point, one reason why the people of Medina were more open to the message of the Prophet than other Arab tribes, was because they constantly heard from the Jewish communities in Medina about this Prophet, about his qualities. This actually helped prepare them. And this is a very important point. When you're told about someone and their qualities and their virtues, you are more likely to accept their message. So the presence of the Jewish community in Medina actually facilitated the Islam of the Medinians. It prepared them to accept the message of the Prophet And by the way, we have hadiths that tell us that Imam al-Mahdi he will reappear when generally speaking the global community will yearn for his reappearance. They will hear about him, about his qualities, they will have hope in him. Hadiths indicate then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give him permission to come. And that is why scholars tell us the more you inform people about the Savior, you give hope to people in the Savior, the more Allah will hasten the reappearance of the Savior because this makes the world more prepared for Him. If somebody comes out of the blue and you're, it's un, completely unexpected, you'll resist. But if you've been, you've been told repeatedly about the Savior, have hope in Him, He'll save us from this global state, He'll protect us from global oppression, global poverty, right? If people keep hearing that, they'll be more ready to accept Him. And we have hadiths that indicate 
after that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give him permission to reappear. So we actually have a role in hastening the reappearance of the Imam. The more we talk about him, the more we spread his ideas of social justice and global justice, the more people will be ready, the more people are ready, the more Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will hasten his reappearance. So this is the first point. One reason why the people of Medina were more willing to embrace the Prophet was because they had heard about him a lot more than others. Through what? Through the people of the book, specifically through the Jewish people. That's one observation here. The second observation here, and this is an important factor, the people of Medina were tired of their constant warfare. The Khazraj tribe fighting the Aus tribe, they were in a miserable situation, constant battles. And the last of those battles was a battle called Ba'ath, and the Aus gained victory in it. Now the warfare was so constant between them, such that historians have noted, they did not put their weapons down even at night. Even at night there would be constant fighting between them. So they were thirsty for a solution, a savior, someone who would just stop that warfare and get them out of this miserable uh, state. And this is why As'ad ibn Zurara, when he met the Prophet in Mecca, you know, he, he, was, he, was, he felt so miserable. The minute he met the Prophet and he heard his message of justice, he interacted with it. He told him, maybe God will save us through you. And that really prepared the people of Medina to accept the Prophet The third observation is, the people of Mecca specifically resisted the message of the Prophet because they found him a threat to their social, political and economic system. Because they had a system built on oppression, injustice, arrogance, favoritism, superiority. And the Prophet brought a message of equality, a message that protects the right of the exploited ones, the rights of women, the rights of slaves, the rights of other races. They found that a threat, so they opposed him. Whereas the people of Medina, they found him a plus. In fact, he will benefit our society. What does this prove to us? This proves to us that oftentimes in history, it is the case that your personal interests will get in the way of submitting the truth. What's the difference between the people of Medina and Mecca? This was a primary difference. The Meccans saw the Prophet a threat to their system. He does not help their personal interests. Whereas the people of Medina did not see him as a threat. In fact, they saw hope in him. This led the Meccans to reject him, it led the people of Medina to accept him. And this is a lesson for us brothers and sisters. Oftentimes in our lives that's how Allah tests us. When it comes to the truth, to justice, I always have to ask myself, is the current stance that I have, is it driven by my personal desires and interests or is it really because it's the truth? People usually side with the truth only if it's compatible with their personal interests, selfish interests. If it's not compatible with their selfish interests, they're not willing to uphold the truth. Whether at the individual level, at the family level, at the business level with the business partner, whatever it is, 
usually our personal interests stop us from embracing the truth. And this is a very clear example. The people of Medina rejected the Prophet and all of his signs because of their selfish personal interests. And that's very important. You know, oftentimes we tend to think of ourselves, no, you know, I'm not like that. If I see the truth, I accept it. Generally, that's not the case. Allah will test you. So train yourself to accept the truth because it is the truth. Not because you find it compatible with your desires. Not because, you know, in your heart you feel uh, positively towards it. Not because your feelings are positive. We don't form our belief system based on feelings. If you ever find someone, even a Muslim, a Shia, who tells you, I feel Islam is right, and that's why I believe in it, that's wrong. That's wrong. This indicates a weak faith because feelings change. Today you feel Islam is right, tomorrow you're going to feel it's wrong. And the member, members of any other religion will tell you the same thing. Islam is not about a feeling that you have. Islam is based on logic. Logical, you accept it. Don't ever follow a path of justice, a path of truth, a belief system because it feels right. Because you'll get fooled. Your desires, manipulators, and especially the shaitan, they know how to create good feelings for you. Believe me, they do. I've even heard from people, you know, sometimes when you sin, by the way, you, you have that feeling of regret, remorse, that bad feeling. Sometimes you feel good about it. You know when that happens? By the way, that's a bad sign. If someone sins and after a while, they don't have that feeling of negativity, it's usually a, a very negative indication. It's a negative sign. And, you know, once uh, a person from one community, you know, he, he, he was asking a, a scholar this question. He's like, I was committing this, this very big sin and initially I felt very bad about it. Then I did it a few times, I started feeling good about it. As, you know, it, it, it became normal, it became positive. So what is this? How do you explain this? In fact, we have hadiths that tell us when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to help you because you have the capacity to be helped, you deserve being helped, Allah creates that feeling of regret in you to help you find your way back. Eventually you'll stop. When Allah sees that you're so irresponsible, so negligent with His laws and you don't care and you don't have any sincere intention to be repentful, Allah takes that feeling away from you. So in fact, you start enjoying the sin. In fact, you start feeling positive about it. That's a punishment from God. Whenever you feel good about a sin, know that this is a punishment from God. And you have to drastically change, you know, the way you are responding to the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So never follow feelings. Islam and the religion of God is not about a feeling. Don't ever base a decision, especially in terms of belief, beliefs, you know, on a feeling. It has to be rational, it has to be, you know, founded on logic, on the justice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not on simple feelings. But logic can create rational feelings. Yes. 
but the reason why you're following it is because it's logical. And yes, maybe I get a feeling with it too. But I'm not following it because of a feeling only. Because oftentimes, if you look at the seven billion people on earth, oftentimes they follow beliefs because of feelings. It's not based on true logic. Allah does give us feelings also to aid us, of course. So if you found the right path through logic and you get the feeling, that's fine. But remember, the main reason why you're following it is not because of the feeling. The feeling is secondary. The primary reason is the logic itself. And that's extremely important. So in any case, when these people met the Prophet these six people, they returned to Medina informing the people of the Prophet's message. The whole town of Yathrib, Medina was now talking about Muhammad Then in the following year, in the year 12 of the Ba'tha, 12 of them from the people of the Ansar, the people of Medina, specifically two from the tribe of Aus and 10 from the tribe of Khazraj, they go to Mecca for the pilgrimage and in a place called the Aqaba. Where's the Aqaba? It's a place in Mina. If you've gone to the Hajj or you've read about the Hajj, the pilgrims, they start the Hajj by going through Mina to Arafat and then where you have the stoning of the devil, where the sheep is slaughtered, that's in a place called Mina. It's right by Mecca, it's not too far from Mecca. In a place in Mina, it's called the Aqaba area. The Prophet was in that area when these people, these 12 people from the Ansar, they meet the Prophet and they give him the following allegiance. They make an allegiance with the Prophet One of those who attended this allegiance, he said, this is the allegiance that we made to the Prophet. Number one, not to ascribe partners to God, no shirk. Number two, we shall not steal. Number three, we shall not commit adultery. Number four, we shall not commit infanticide or killing our children out of fear of poverty because this is something many Arab tribes would do. Out of fear of poverty, they would kill their children. Yes, they would kill them. And their philosophy was, you know, I'm a little bit poor right now, I'm financially struggling, I can't raise my child in the future, or if I die, what's going to happen to my children? There's no one to support them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells them in the Holy Quran, I will support you, you and your kids. In a number of verses, Allah prohibits them from killing their children out of poverty or fear of poverty. Allah says, I will take care of them, have hope in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they made this allegiance with the Prophet that they will not kill their children. They will not fabricate lies and accusations. They will not disobey the Prophet And the Prophet told them, if you stay true to this allegiance, to this promise, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will grant you paradise. Otherwise, if you break it, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if He decides to forgive you, He can. And if He decides to punish you, then He will punish you. So when they return to Medina, the Prophet sends to them one of his good companions by the name of Mus'ab ibn Umayr. The Prophet sends him to Medina to teach them the Holy Quran because now you had 
you know, a movement of people in Medina becoming Muslims, so they need someone to educate them about Islam. The Prophet sends them Mus'ab ibn Umair to teach them the Holy Quran, to teach them the religion of Islam, the laws and rulings of the religion of Islam. Mus'ab ibn Umair was an interesting companion of the Prophet He grew up in Mecca. He was a young, handsome young man. He came from a wealthy family. He would always wear fancy clothes, expensive clothes. He would always put on, you know, the finest perfumes of the time. So he came from a wealthy family. When he heard about the message of the Prophet in the early days of Islam, he decides to meet the Prophet. Where does he meet him? If you remember, we talked about the house of Artam. When the Prophet in those early years, for about a month or two, he took that as his headquarters and he would privately meet with those Muslims. So he goes to the house of Arqam, which is close to Masjid al-Haram. He meets the Prophet and he becomes a Muslim. But because he feared his family, his tribe would persecute him, he would keep that a secret. He would not openly declare that he was a Muslim. Until one day, a man by the name of Uthman ibn Talha, he saw him, he noticed him praying. So he realized that he had become a Muslim, he goes and he tells on him. He tells his tribe or his family that, you know, your son has become a Muslim and they start to torture him. They imprison him, they torture him until he migrates secretly to the Habasha and that first migration to Abyssinia in order to save himself. So he was truly a great companion of the Prophet he was around the age of 40 when he participated in the battles of Badr and Uhud. At the battle of Uhud, he becomes a martyr and a shaheed. And the one who killed him, it's, it's a very sad way in which he died. He, he was carrying the banner of Islam, defending the Prophet at Uhud, when his enemy struck his right arm. He amputated his right arm. So he took the banner in his left arm. He amputated his left arm. So he tried, you know, struggling to carry somehow the, the banner when, you know, he was dealt a, a, a fatal blow and he became a shaheed. So he was truly one of the good companions of the Holy Prophet It has been reported that once the Prophet he saw him coming, you know, after he became Muslim, he lost all that wealth, that special street treatment. His, his parents, especially his mother, she really spoiled him. But this is before he became Muslim. When he became a Muslim, he lost all of that. Once the Prophet saw him wearing coarse clothes, I think the hadith says uh, it was made, maybe made from fleece. This is something only poor people would wear or like shepherds would wear. So the Prophet according to this hadith, he looks at him and he says, انظروا إلى هذا الرجل الذي قد نور الله قلبه. Look at this man whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has illuminated his heart. The Prophet says, I myself witnessed him come and go with the finest of clothes. But then because of Allah and his messenger, he abandoned all of that and now you see what he's wearing. 
So the Prophet would praise Mus'ab ibn Umair for his sacrifice, for the religion of Islam, for his love, for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Messenger of God. Mus'ab ibn Umair, he, went, he goes to Medina, so he's teaching those groups of Muslims the Holy Quran. One of the tribal leaders in Medina by the name of Sa'd ibn Ma'ath. Does anyone recognize Sa'd ibn Ma'ath from which incident? No, not the, there's, there's a, a more important incident. We usually hear about it, in the future we'll examine it. You know, the, the, the Jewish massacre. He's the one who actually passed the sentence that, you know, those uh, uh, Jews... No, not the ones, those who conspired against the Prophet you know, they, the Prophet you know, according to what we're told, he had like 600 or I don't know, 400 or 700 Jews killed. So he was the one, he had, he had ties with the Jews. So they told the Prophet, we won't accept your sentence. By the way, had they accepted the Prophet's sentence, he would have forgiven them. They said, let Sa'd, he's a friend of ours, let him decide the, the punishment for us. He's like, I think because of your treason, all the men should be killed. So we'll examine, by the way, this incident. It's a very sensitive incident. Did the Prophet really have 400 or 700 Jews be killed or not? We have a lot of uh, critical points about this incident. So he's famous for that. In any case, Sa'd ibn Ma'ad, he would pass by and he heard Mus'ab ibn Umayyad teaching the people of Medina this religion, this Quran. He becomes furious. He tells them, what is this nonsense that you're learning? And he threatens them. So the people of Medina, the Muslims in Medina, they actually had to go and learn Quran secretly. They would go like around a well, secretly gather to hear about the Quran. Another time he passed by, he caught them, being taught by Mus'ab ibn Umayyad. This time he threatens them. He's like, look, last time you did not take my warning seriously. This time, this time I'm going to beat you up. Stop, what is this new religion that you're preaching? So one of the people present there, he told him, he was his cousin. He tells him, my dear cousin, calm down. Come and listen to this message. If you can refute it, by all means, come and refute it. Just listen to it at least. He's like, okay, let me listen to it. So he listens to the Holy Quran and the teachings. Initially, he did not admit that he found the teachings acceptable. He's like, okay, let me think about it. He goes back home, he thinks about it, he finds the religion of Islam, the true religion. So he gathers his tribe. His tribe was actually a very important tribe. Banu Abdul Ashhal, a very important tribe in Medina. He gathers them and he tells them, what do you think of me? I'm your leader, what do you think of me? They tell him, we regard you very highly. Anything you do, will do. If you have any opinion, any suggestion, we're always open to whatever you have to offer. He's like, okay, if that's how you find me, then I have found the right religion and I ask you all to embrace the religion of Islam and follow Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad. Historical accounts tell us nearly all of that family, extended family and tribe, they became Muslim. This was a very big victory for the religion of Islam. And this was the first family 
to fully support the Prophet in Medina, the family of this person. So he supports now Mus'ab ibn Umair. Now Mus'ab was facing some resistance from, from, from some people in Medina and they threatened him. They told him, look, you can no longer stay here and preach, you better leave. So he seeks refuge in Sa'ad ibn Ma'ad. He goes to him and to his tribe. Sa'ad tells him, come, come to my tribe, come to my area and you can freely preach the religion of Islam and that's what he does. So we see this growing movement in Medina supporting the message of the Prophet and becoming Muslims. This trend continued until nearly almost every family from the Ansar in Medina had a few members who had converted to the religion of Islam. So we see this growing movement in Medina to support the Prophet It is also reported that Mus'ab ibn Umair was the first one who led the Friday prayer in Islam. The Prophet in Mecca, he could not lead the Friday prayer because of the persecution of the Meccans. They would not allow him to congregate and do the Friday prayer. So according to some hadiths, when he sent Mus'ab ibn Umair to Medina, he gave him the instruction to gather on Friday with the men and women and to pray two rakahs. Now this was the original form of the Friday prayer, you know, without a sermon and the speech in its early stages. Then the Prophet expanded on it. But initially the Friday prayer was just a turaka, just like the morning prayer that you pray at noon on Friday. So the Prophet does give him that instruction. Now some have objected to this by saying Surah Al-Jum'ah was revealed when the Prophet migrated to Medina. At this time when the Prophet was in Mecca, there was no Salat al-Jum'ah, so how can we accept these accounts? We don't really consider this a valid objection, why? Because Surah al-Jum'ah does not say that from today Allah has mandated Salat al-Jum'ah. In fact, there are indications in the verse that Salat al-Jum'ah was prayed regularly before Surah al-Jum'ah was revealed. Which verse gives you that indication? It talks about a habit some companions would have while the salah was being established. See, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuha alladheena amanu, idha nudiya salati min yawm al-jum'ah, when you are called to pray on Friday, fas'aw ila dhikrillah, race, go to the remembrance of Allah, wadharul bay', stop doing business transactions. You know, those very companions, they would abandon Salat al-Jum'ah. Yes, until Allah had to reveal a verse exposing them and reprimanding them. In fact, if you look at historical accounts, once the Prophet in Medina prayed Salat al-Jum'ah and the only people who attended was Ali Imam Hassan and Hussein and Fatima. Everybody else was busy with their business transactions. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rebuked them for that. So when Allah revealed Surah al-Jum'ah, it seems that Salat al-Jum'ah already was being prayed. So Allah rebuked them for not going to Salat al-Jum'ah and being busy with, with their business transactions. So in any case, we do have historical accounts that the Prophet told Mus'ab ibn Umair to pray Salat al-Jum'ah on Friday at noon in Medina. So we could argue that this was the first Friday prayer in the religion of Islam. It was established in Medina with the leadership of Mus'ab ibn Umair. 
Now, after a while, after preaching the religion of Islam for some time, Mus'ab returns to Mecca to inform the Prophet of the results and what you know, he's accomplished in Medina. And the Prophet was very happy to hear that. Then in the following year, year 13 of the Ba'tha, this is the last year in which the Prophet stayed in Mecca. This is the last year of his life in Mecca. So in the year 13, a large group of people from Medina, about 500 of them, they come to the Hajj, to the pilgrimage. Those who had become Muslim, they come, and those who were not Muslim, they also came because they would come for the pilgrimage anyway. Now, the Prophet makes a secret meeting with the Muslims. He tells them, come to my house. The Prophet was in a house in Aqaba, in Mina. This house belonged to his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib. He had a house there. The Prophet in that house calls for a secret meeting. He tells them at night when people are sleeping, don't make any noise, don't make any conspicuous movements, come, I have a meeting with you. 70, about 70 of the Muslims of Medina, they go and they meet the Prophet in that house. 70 men, two women. They come to the Prophet, they pledge allegiance to the Prophet We call this the second allegiance of Aqaba. The first one was those 12 men, the previous year who made the allegiance with the Prophet. This is the second allegiance that they make. Now you have about 72 people who make Bay'at al-Aqaba, the allegiance of Aqaba with the Prophet They give him the following promise. First of all, they said, we'll protect you and your family just like we would protect ourselves, our children and our family. Number two, we'd give you refuge and support if that's needed. Number three, we'll obey you and listen to you. Number three, we'll spend our money and donate that in your cause and the cause of Islam. Number five, we'll enjoin the good, we'll forbid the evil. Number six, we'll uphold the truth, we won't be scared, we won't be concerned with others, what they will say and them attacking us, we'll stay firm. And number seven, and this is a very important one, that the Prophet made sure to make this promise with them, that we will not try to compete with those who are rightful to this affair, meaning the Khilafah and leadership. If there's anyone whom Allah and the Prophet see as being the rightful Caliphs and leaders, we will not compete with them or dispute with them, we'll accept whomever you choose. Once the Prophet saw that they made this commitment, then he pledged the allegiance with them and he accepted their allegiance. Notice that the Prophet would always make this emphasis on who will rule after him. If you remember from previous lessons, some tribes, they told the Prophet, we will support you, but if you appoint us as rulers after you, he would not accept. He would say, this matter belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when did the Prophet really accept the allegiance of the people of Medina? When they told him that whoever you'll choose, we're, we're okay with that. They made that promise, so he accepted their allegiance. Now the Prophet, by the way, he did warn them that look, there's going to be a big fight with the Persian Empire, with the Roman Empire, with the kings of the time. Are you willing to sacrifice? They said yes. There was a man by the name of Al-Abbas, Ibn Nadula, 
He wanted to make sure he was from the Ansar. He wanted to make sure that the Ansar were not fooling around with the Prophet. He told them, look, the Prophet doesn't need you guys. If you really want to support him, then support him. But don't fool him. Don't let him migrate or come or, you know, build anything on your promises and then you betray him. Be very clear with the Prophet. They told him, no, we are firm in our belief and specifically three of them. One of them was Abdullah ibn Hazam or Haram, the father of Jabir. You've heard of Jabir ibn Abdullah al-Ansari. His father was present at the Aqaba incident over here. The second one was As'ad ibn Zurara and the third one was Ibn Tayyihan, this great companion of the Prophet and Imam Ali. These three, they told him, what is this talk that you are saying? Oh Messenger of God, our blood is your blood, our soul is your soul and whatever you do, we accept. So yes, we will stay firm, even if we're fought, even if wars are waged against us, we accept that. When the Prophet sees this determination from them, he accepts their allegiance and the allegiance of Aqaba takes place. Now one final note, the Meccans, the Quraysh, they hear about this. They hear about this allegiance that secretly took place, so they take their swords and they come to the house of the Prophet and Aqaba. The Ansar tell the Prophet, Oh, we hear, the, you know, we hear them carrying their swords. Do you want us to fight them now? Let's fight them now. The Prophet says, no. I have not been given that permission. Let's not fight them. They say, okay, come with us to Medina now. He says, no, not yet. I've not been given permission to migrate. So he tells them, just leave. Before they arrive at the house, quickly leave. So they disperse and they arrive at the scene at the house. Hamza, he comes and he meets them. They tell him, oh Hamza, is there a secret meeting here we're not aware of? You're, make, you're making a secret deal with the people of Medina to fight us? Hamza does taqiyya over here to protect the Prophet's life. He says, no, 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 there's nothing here, go leave. And if anyone of you tries to come to the house, I will kill him with my sword. So the two people who were with the Prophet at the allegiance of Aqaba from the Meccans were Hamza and Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib these two were there defending the Prophet Now they go to Abdullah ibn Ubay. Abdullah ibn Ubay, he was a leader from the people of Medina, but he was not a Muslim. He actually turned out to be an enemy of Islam. They told him, what is this? You're making secret deals with Muhammad. He says, no, I'm not aware of this. So they were confused. Did really something happen? Was there a secret meaning? But then later they realized that no, there was a secret meaning. So they try to chase some of the Ansar who were going back to Medina, especially As'ad ibn Zurara, and they torture him because he made that deal with the Prophet In any case, they go back to the city of Medina and now they're anxiously waiting for the Prophet to migrate to the city of Medina. But notice that what Hamza did, by the way, was an act of taqiyya in the presence of the Prophet and the Prophet did not rebuke him. So this is another proof that we can use that when you're in danger, you don't have to tell them exactly what's going on. And he did that in order to defend the life of the Prophet